Green Teacher's main office is located on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabek, Huron-Wendat, Haudenosaunee, and Mississauga peoples. This territory is covered by the Williams Treaty. I'm glad that we never started the workshops with there are people who deny climate change existing because that might have started a completely different conversation and that teacher mm -hmm. may not have even taken the opportunity to go that way. And if you build that foundation in kindergarten, when we talk about a changing climate later on, that's something that's really internal to those kids. And that's perfectly appropriate to get into what's the difference between weather and climate. When we talk about solution-based learning, we think about both the little things that kids can do to feel empowered and the bigger ways we can contribute to some of these big picture solutions. It's certainly made me try and consider what the whole picture and the circle of influence around our politicians are, because it's amazing. I would have never guessed that this would have happened in my lifetime. Testing, testing. Hey, I'm Ian. And I'm Sophia. And welcome to Talking with Green Teachers. This is the Environmental Education Podcast, where we discuss recent developments, big ideas, and creative approaches to teaching green. In this episode... So I think those of us making individual actions also contribute to collective actions, right? So if some of mm -hmm. those individual actions are learning how to assess politicians' platforms in various different areas, then we're campaigning for people to put policies in place that allow for more collective actions at much bigger scales. And that's part of where this education piece is too, right? Mm -hmm. a, a sixth or a seventh grader can write a really good letter to a politician. The red knot is a mid-sized sandpiper with warm rufous underparts and buffy edges to select shoulder feathers. On a visit to Delaware Bay off Cape May, New Jersey in late spring, it has historically been automatic to see hordes of transient red knots feeding on horseshoe crab eggs. However, the knot's numbers have noticeably declined since 2000, owing to many factors, climate change among them. The impacts of climate change are felt across New Jersey, a state that is taking the issue seriously, especially in the realm of education. Lauren Madden is a prominent player in New Jersey's climate change education efforts, and she chatted with Ian about the state's approach to climate change ed, the value of community-based approaches, and the high-impact choices that individuals can make. So in June of 2020, New Jersey became the first U.S. state to include climate change standards across the K-12 spectrum. This magnificent achievement is the culmination of a process that began with the question, what are the biggest needs with regard to climate change education in New Jersey? You wrote the report for the Thought Leader Committee that addressed this question, and what did the committee find? Yeah, so the Thought Leader Committee is kind of made up of an interesting group of people from across the state. It includes um, a lot of different stakeholders from, from lots of different schools and, and lobbying groups and, and, and nonprofits. So it's, it's a really sort of robust group. Um, and it was really important that we, we got some talking points right away, you know, so, right. so we sent a survey 
to all of the, the thought leader committee members. And we told them if you have one or two colleagues who you think would be good contributors, that they would be able to send that on to them as well. So I, I assume that the report is just the thought leader committee and, and their, uh, their one or two others. And I also sent it to some teachers who I knew were doing great work right now. But yeah, so in any case, that, that was not the answer to your question. I apologize. No, that's <laughs> right. that, that's useful background information. <laughs> So the, basically, we, we kind of got into these four big categories of what right. we thought the needs were. So one was professional development. You know, not every teacher learned about climate change in school and certainly not outside of the sciences. We can't make those assumptions that that happened. Um, mm -hmm. But we're never going to get to a place where I don't know that we'll ever completely solve the problem, but get past the problem of climate change unless we look at it from a multidimensional, multi-perspective kind of way. Um, so professional development really matters. The other thing is good curricular materials. Um, teachers have so much on their plates, especially right now. It's such a, uh, a trying and challenging time for teachers all over the world. Um, so we want to make sure that we have good curricular materials that they can pick up and use or adapt to their own classrooms in a way that they see fit. Then beyond that, I don't think we should look at schools as vacuums. They're, they're not on their own. They're not, uh, and the thought leader committee doesn't think we should look at schools as vacuums. We really need to make sure that we're considering community members, family members, different organizations within our communities, businesses, to make sure that when we're approaching climate change ed, we're not looking at this as just something we that happens with children. This is something that that's a community effort um, that requires some buy-in and some collaboration that way. And then finally, leadership. If we don't have school boards and administrators on board, um, nothing happens. So it's so we really tried to take all of these kind of holistic suggestions and categorize them into those four big areas. For sure. So you mentioned about curricular resources. What in your mind constitutes a good or a high quality curricular resource as it pertains to climate change? That's a great question. And I, I think the answer is it depends, right? Right. <laughs> Unfortunately. It's a safe answer. <laughs> it's a safe answer, but it also, I think we have to realize that teachers are coming from so many different starting points. Right. So a good curricular resource for someone who has been integrating climate change and maybe other problem-based learning type activities in their classroom might be just a handful of articles or a data set that they're going to use to, to spark conversation and, and some problem solving with their students. A teacher who's completely unfamiliar with this, especially someone working maybe with younger children in a non-science content area, if we're looking at, you know, changing coastlines with, with third graders, um, then a good curricular resource might be something that's a little bit more scripted and straightforward that has the things that the teacher can pick up and use tomorrow. So I think when we talk about good curricular resources, it really depends on what the person is looking for. And with that said, I think that means we can't assume everybody's starting from the same place and we can't assume everybody has the same needs. So as much as I would like justice-oriented, interdisciplinary, outside-the-box problem-based activities happening in every classroom, I think we need to celebrate small starts too. And that third grade teacher who spends some time investigating changes in coastlines on maps, and it's a, a shorter activity and a more directed activity, if that's the first step, then that needs to be celebrated too, because that sort of information, when children have a chance to really engage with it, it primes the pump for when they get a little bit older and they're in different contexts and can apply what they learned earlier. So for me, it's really important that whatever curricular resources are out there 
that they are adaptable and flexible and at a variety of entry points so that we can start and celebrate everyone's integration of these things. So I guess for me, kind of coming back to it, and uh, we can kind of get into the rubric study too, if, if that's where you were going with this, which I think is also really important. Yeah. I think there are only two non-negotiables, content accuracy and developmental appropriateness. And yes. so long as those two things are there, um, then we need to make sure we're meeting teachers where they're at and we're providing resources that are going to help them make good first steps or good 20th steps. Well, let's unpack those two components because I think that's really important. So content accuracy and developmentally appropriate. Starting with the content accuracy part, obviously there's still a lot of obfuscation. I mean, the hard denialists are fewer and far between. They're still out there, but they're fewer and far between. And we're getting into more. I was just reading Michael Mann's recent book, The New Climate War, and he talks about a series of new Ds in addition to denial, you know, deflection and delaying. Discourses of delay has been written about a lot. What are some of the priorities in terms of content accuracy in today's world? That's a great question. So I think so I'm going to answer that question, but then I'm going to give you uh, some uh, uh, something that I have recently shifted in my own practice as a teacher and professional development provider yeah. after recent experience, because it's it's definitely made me think a little bit differently, a, a very recent experience I encountered. But that said, I think, you know, we it needs to be scientifically accurate. There is no debate in the scientific community as, of course. as to what is happening. And I think, I think we need to be clear in our communication that we're we're giving scientifically accurate explanations for what is going on. So that content accuracy is basically using what the scientific consensus. And then if we, we can't also, we can't stop at science either. And we need to make sure that, you know, geography coastlines are in fact changing the, the shape of lakes and rivers and, and the materials that we stand on are absolutely changing. The policies that exist, whether they are supporting increased climate change or supporting the, the, the stopping of that are real, they exist. So I think everything we need to do, we need to make sure that it's got this real world accuracy. And one of the reasons our partnership with Subject to Climate, you know, they have a scientist review team that looks yes. at all their materials to ensure um, I think also, you know, there's a certain amount of content validity. Green Teacher is a great resource for accurate content. Um, the National Science Teachers Association's publication, Science and Children, is a source for accurate content. Um, so I think it's important that we're really good consumers of information and we go to reliable sources. Yes, especially in today's world. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. But I will tell you something that this has really been sticking with me for a little while. I recently worked on a research project with a nonprofit, Save Born and Get Bay, um, to do some professional development for teachers in climate change and marine science, and also their use of the next gen science standards. Completely voluntary project. And I had made the inaccurate assumption that every teacher who would have volunteered to participate in this project would support the scientific consensus regarding climate change. Well, we had a focus group with participants after the fact to get some, you know, reflections and, and work on our research. And one of the participants came right out and said, you know, I walked in and I was a climate change denier. I didn't believe in any of this. Really? And, and what she said was, you were kind to me. You didn't present it as a controversy. You only gave us the information that was there. So we started with a naturalist walk where we looked at the invasive plant species that were thriving because of the changing climate and all of these different examples we gave, we didn't even touch the possibility that there was any sort of debate. And it turned out that worked. 
So I think sometimes it's it's critical that we have many different diverse voices at the table always. That, that that's absolutely critical, and that oh, yeah. we get voice from different perspectives. That we get the artistic perspective, we get the political perspective, we get the historical perspective. All of that has to come into the conversation, absolutely. But allowing inaccurate opinions <laughs> to be part of the conversation doesn't have to happen. So I'm glad that we never started the workshops with there are people who deny climate change existing because that might have started a completely different conversation and that teacher Mm -hmm. may not have even taken the opportunity to go that way. I think just starting with, okay, here, we're standing right here in the Barnegat Bay watershed. This is something we can see with our eyes right this moment. And, And just skipping over the part that there are people who find this controversial actually helped us make some progress. Wow, that's a a really important anecdote. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that. I mean, that's a real reminder that we don't need to entertain things that have been settled. I mean, we don't debate whether the earth is round or whether humans have, you know, 10 fingers and 10 toes. These are just facts. There's no point in going back and debating. Getting back to the developmental appropriateness piece, David Sobel, he often talks about, and I'm somewhat paraphrasing, something to the effect of no tragedies before fourth grade, so around age (laughs) nine-ish. Is that, that, yeah, it's a a great one. There are no natural disasters instill awe and love of nature. Is is that sort of what you mean by developmental appropriateness or is there more to it? Yes, and. So I think- um, Love it. (laughs) I I love David Sobel. I think he's wonderful. And I think his work is brilliant. I think one of the things we can do, and this kind of goes back to, there's content that's developmentally appropriate that students can build foundations with. So for example- Kindergarten teachers, I venture to say around the world, but I know for certain around the U.S., tend to do a great job teaching about weather, right? Mm -hmm. They keep these wonderful weather charts. The kids report on the weather. They look at patterns in weather. It's not a big jump to explain how climate and weather are similar and different in kindergarten, right? Yeah. And just explain that that climate is weather patterns over long periods of time, whereas weather is something that can change day to day and season to season. And if you build that foundation in kindergarten, when we talk about a changing climate later on, that's something that's really internal to those kids. And that's perfectly appropriate to get into what's the difference between weather and climate. Same as looking at things like maps, same as, and then I think the more important piece getting to David Sobel's work is we don't protect what we don't love. And if we don't take some time to get to love the the world around us and the land around us and the tiny little bugs and plants and creatures that live in our schoolyards, we're not going to be motivated to protect it. And I think taking time to let children wonder and ask good questions and spend some time outside and get to know things around them, um, we set the stage for them to really truly care and love about it and then be motivated to protect it in the future. Oh, absolutely. Talking with Green Teachers is produced by Green Teacher, a registered charity in Canada that has been enhancing environmental education since 1986. By taking out a subscription, you can join our global network of passionate environmental educators, receive each issue of our quarterly magazine, and gain exclusive access to our vast archive of webinars and magazine back issues. All proceeds go back into the organization to support our vision of helping each successive generation of young learners become more environmentally literate than the last. To learn more, visit greenteacher.com.
no red knots have arrived yet on this cool, windy morning, but conditions can change on a dime here. It's often a good idea to just hunker down and wait. Getting back to the report, you wrote that the stated vision is to ensure that all teachers, students, and educational leaders in New Jersey understand climate change and are empowered to develop solutions to climate-related problems. So the word that really sticks out there is solutions, and you mentioned about problem-based learning, which in many ways could be considered solution-based learning because you, in that form of learning, problem-based learning, you don't have a problem without a solution. How can we empower students by focusing on solutions? Because that's something that just comes up again and again. Yeah. So it's interesting you said I use the term problem-based learning a few times, right, uh, in this conversation already. But it's the standard, right? It's the standard. And I think it was at an NAAAE meeting at one point. I heard someone saying, why do we say that? We should be talking about <laughs> solution-based learning. That's such yeah. a, it's, you know, we really want to work hard at not using deficit language about children. Yeah. We probably should have more hopeful language in what we're talking about. Building solutions is a way that we can start contributing to hopeful mindsets. If all we see is melting icebergs and sad polar bears, it can really feel like hopelessness. So I think, and, and then, so what the heck do we mean by solution-based learning, right? The kinds of things that need to happen are things that, that happen globally and at enormous scale, but taking those third graders or fourth graders on that nature walk and showing them those invasive plants and giving them a pair of gloves and a shovel and say, let's get rid of these things is really a way to let kids feel empowered. Right. And that's super doable. You know, it, it's absolutely possible to do a lot of these kinds of things. I think reducing our, our carbon footprint in a lot of different ways by walking more and, in, and encouraging and celebrating the kids who show up on their bikes and on their feet when they get to school and, Doing a lot of um, sort of personal monitoring of our own actions is a way to, to get into solution-based learning. The other piece too is I think we need to explore, and this is not really for the little guys, but, but for you know maybe middle and high school, is to look at some solutions that haven't worked. So 20 years ago when I was in grad school for marine science, one of the big popular trends then was this, this iron fertilization in the ocean that they could just sprinkle yep. more iron in the ocean and that was going to make everything capture more carbon and we'd solve our problem. All we did was acidify the ocean and kill lots of stuff and dissolve a lot of the, the phytoplankton and, and zooplankton that are part of this essential food web that captures carbon for us. So it turned out that solution didn't work. And if we had taken a more systematic approach to thinking about that kind of problem solving, we might've come up with some better solutions, but, you know, we need to change human action and we need to change public policy and we need to vote in people who are making decisions that are going to benefit our planet in this way. So, and I think when we're thinking about solutions, when you look from a systems thinking approach, I know Jamie Cloud often talks about this, yes. you know, yes, systems thinking allows us to solve more problems at once. So if you can get kids to think about changing the energy source that's used in their school and they, they can advocate for putting solar panels in or wind energy or, or other sources that are better and, and help our environment regenerate a little bit. Well, we're also going to save money too, right? And that means that the school has more sources to get good resources for their students and get good trainings for their teachers and bring in great right. books. You know, so, so we're also, we're solving more than one problem at once. And that's how you know it's a systemic solution. Um, so I think it's really critical that when we talk about solution-based learning, we think about both the little things that kids can do to feel empowered and the bigger ways we can contribute to some of these big picture solutions. When it comes to the community-based 
solutions. What are some solutions that really resonate with students in different parts of New Jersey? Yeah. So some things that we're seeing, one thing I saw, and, and it was really brilliant up in Patterson, there was a team of scientists and engineers that was working with some middle school students, eighth graders, about looking at the problems that their school faces due to climate change and, and you know, increased severe weather events and things like that. And they actually worked with the eighth graders to identify parts of their school building where they can put in some green infrastructure to capture the water and to add some rain gardens on the roofs and on the side. Oh, I love that. And it was amazing. So these eighth graders actually talked to the scientists and the engineers. They looked at the problems in their own physical school building, the place where they went every day, where they saw the flooding and they saw the mold and everything else. And then they worked together to actually build those solutions. That was incredible, you know? And I, I think those kinds of things are possible everywhere. Um, but let, letting kids have the voice to make some of these changes really makes a big difference. And that comes through in the report you talk about involving young voices because they're critical stakeholders. I mean, statistically, they are the ones that are projected based on life expectancy to live the most of the future. <laughs> so, of course, they need to have their voice at the table. And, you know, that brings up discussions about lowering the voting age to 16. And, you know, that's a whole other rabbit hole. But that's certainly... I think a compelling argument when you just simply look at the math of it. And I think if you talk to the, you know, the early childhood educators out there, I think the research is pretty clear. If we define intelligence by ability to make connections across ideas, humans are at their most intelligent at age two. We spend yeah. the whole rest of our life narrowing after that, you know, <laughs> and, and if, if we really want to think about the way we can um, look at different connected ideas, I, I think we need to, to let little guys tell us their, their stories and, and allow them to help set the course for where we're going. For sure. Hey, it's Ian. I'm just here to let you know about two of our newest books, Teaching Kids About Climate Change and Teaching Teens About Climate Change. Each one is kind of like an educator's toolbox with ready-to-use hands-on lessons focused on four core dimensions of climate change. Visit greenteacher.com to get your copies. We also have special rates available for bulk orders, and all proceeds go back into the nonprofit. As anticipation builds, your mind wanders to the wanderings of dreadnoughts. 19,000 miles each year between southern Argentina and the Canadian Arctic. Small drops of rain start heating your jacket. So last year in 2021, Christina Kwok and Rebecca Winthrop highlighted studies suggesting that, and I quote, if just 16% of high school students in middle and high income countries were educated about climate change, there would be a tremendous reduction of carbon emissions of nearly 20 gigatons by 2050. So that is certainly a statistic that makes, I think, many people pause and stop in their tracks. So let's unpack that a bit. Yeah. So it's a hot topic and it sounds like a giant number, right? 20 gigatons. And, and I think, you know, and that's not the only solution or the best solution out there, but 20 gigatons is kind of a giant number to think about. Um, so what they did was they sort of backtracked with some calculations of some studies um, with students in California who learned, uh, who started with a carbon footprint calculator, which I realize comes from the fossil fuel industry, yeah, but you know what? It, it is a tool that we that yep. you can use to sort of quantify things. So they did a carbon footprint footprint calculation pre and post um, instruction on climate change, and then they sort of extrapolated that decrease in carbon footprint numerically to get themselves up to twenty gigatons. And I, I think kind of 
calculating backwards from there, they got that was about 16% or so of middle and high school students in middle and high income countries. I think it's just clear, it's, it's a lot of steps and it's a lot of mathematical jumps. And I think, you know, all we have is mathematical models, right? right. When we're going to try and quantify things as we predicted in the future, but uh, they based that calculation off of a study that they did with kids in California. And my understanding was they, there was a lag time of about five years from when they were exposed to a very high intensity university course. Is that right? I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. It may be an imperfect statistic, but just to contextualize it, for those who are familiar with Project Drawdown, they ranked 80 solutions in their book, which came out in 2017. And if you look at solution number 14, it's approximately 20 gigatons of carbon dioxide or equivalents by 2050 drawn down or prevented from getting into the atmosphere. So, you know, the upper reaches of a list of 80 solutions that includes things like rooftop solar and reducing food waste and offshore wind and onshore wind and other solutions that we know are high impact that we hear a lot more about. So whether the statistic is completely precise or not is up for discussion, but it certainly speaks to the value of climate change education in terms of the careers that people choose, the choices that they make. And it's not just those small individual choices like riding a bike to work, not that that's not incredibly valuable, but decisions about how they get around how their transportation, if they eat locally, if they eat a mainly meat or plant-based diet, how they heat their homes, how they heat their workplaces, if they end up being in a leadership or a managerial position at work. So it's certainly, there's a multiplier effect from effective climate change education that certainly has been captured in this report. I agree wholeheartedly. And, you know, and I think it's these collective small changes do make a difference. And I realized that, you know, the fact that I drive a hybrid doesn't matter anywhere near as much than the fact that Jeff Bezos went to space, right? Like, right. <laughs> like there's my individual actions pale in comparison to the individual actions of people on both sides. But I think these collective things, I think I read a statistic, I was teaching an environmental science course at, at TCNJ, the college where I work yeah. a few years back and they, they gave a statistic, I believe it was in the early 2000s because Priuses were out. And ah. uh, I, think, I think they said if everyone in the U.S. had meatless Mondays, if we just reduced our meat consumption one day a week, it would be the equivalent to changing every single SUV in the U.S. to a Prius. Like those kinds of changes are tremendous. And I think uh, when we do these educative practices with our kids, they get a chance to see things a little bit differently and they get a chance to, and a lot of it, a lot of this kind of education is sort of the day-to-day -day practices in a classroom. So like even for example, in my teaching lab um, where I, I work with pre-service elementary school teachers, we have a worm composter in the back of the room and it's literally a bin of worms and my students put their apple cores and, and like we shred paper every so often and spray and I use the worm droppings in my own garden and and but what's happened is oh it doesn't smell bad oh that is a simple thing you can do oh I could do that in my classroom one day and if we keep doing a lot of these small practices and we really educate students about these big picture things we can get to a place where there's a lot of us making these small changes and, and, and maybe we do get somewhere close to 20 gigatons right that'd be amazing yeah. And it seems to me that given what we know about how much the fossil fuel lobby is pushing the responsibility to individuals, that's not to say that we shouldn't focus on individual actions, but maybe it's just focus on individual actions 
but always with an eye towards scaling up. So can you do this individually, then in your classroom, then in your entire school, then in your entire district, maybe then in your entire state? Is that maybe sort of an antidote to this unfortunately effective strategy of things like a carbon footprint and getting people to only focus on individual actions while the companies just continue fracking and pumping the oil? So I'm going to give you a yes and answer again there. Ah, (laughs) Very good. So I think those of us making individual actions also contribute to collective actions, right? So if some of Mm -hmm. those individual actions are learning how to assess politicians' platforms in various different areas, then we're campaigning for people to put policies in place that allow for more collective actions at much bigger scales. And that's part of where this education piece is too, right? Mm -hmm. A a sixth or a seventh grader can write a really good letter to a politician. And if there's 2000 of them going in, that might change the tone of what kind of happens in that that politician's agenda. And we, we can't forget that, that, you know, individuals do have their personal actions and the actions in those getting into that Broth and Brenner model of development, right? All the different systems in which we we exist in, right? We we have all of these bigger spaces, but we can have impacts on the kinds of decisions that are made bigger term. Absolutely. And maybe the lesson there is focus on individual actions that have collective impact, just to sort of package it together neatly. For sure. And, and and I also kind of getting back to that political side of things, and I don't want to make this a political discussion necessarily, although sadly, climate change is absolutely a political discussion. Of course. I was at a conference actually in Canada, in Vancouver earlier this week, and sharing some of our research and explaining kind of where it comes from. And um, explaining that that First Lady Tammy Murphy is the person who who initiated this policy in our state. It's unusual in the U.S. for a First Lady of a state to have such a focused agenda about what she hoped to see. So I have to wonder too, when we're looking at our politicians, are we looking at the people they surround themselves with, right? And and the people who are going to influence some of their decisions as well. You know, I'm absolutely floored. And, and Tammy Worthy's work outside of climate change, what she's done for infant and maternal health and for businesses owned by women and people of color in our state have been remarkable. So I think it's really important that we consider when we're making political decisions, when we're going to the ballot ourselves, it certainly made me try and consider what the whole picture and the circle of influence around our politicians are, because it's amazing. I would have never guessed that this would have happened in my lifetime where, where this kind of thing could happen. So, Yeah, it really is inspiring. Hi there. You might recognize my voice from such podcasts as the one you're listening to right now. Speaking of podcasts, Green Teacher is involved in another one. It's called Earthy Chats. And you know what? How about I let my co-host, Jade Harvey-Barrel, tell you the rest? Take it away, Jade. Thanks, Ian. Hello, all. Indeed, we'd love for you to join us for Earthy Chats, our new podcast where we've come together to spend time picking the brains of the brightest and best in environmental education. Like busy bees, we'll be cross-pollinating ideas across our range of interests and knowledge bases to give you the inside scoop on what's new, who's doing it, and how you can do it too. All of the experts featured on the show have resources available Canada-wide in the Outdoor Learning Store. That's Canada's non-profit outdoor resource store. You can check out the range of educator and student resources available at www.outdoor.com learningstore.ca 
So whether you're a teacher, educator, parent, or just a general nature geek, there'll be something for you to sink your teeth into. Did I cover everything there, Ian? Definitely. Thanks, Jade. So yeah, Earthy Chats. Check it out on your favorite podcast app. As the soft rain builds, you hear a murmuring of sandpiper voices from overhead as a mixed flock descends from the sky and circles around you. Needless to say, other jurisdictions will undoubtedly look to New Jersey as a model and will wonder how can they make similar breakthroughs in climate change education. So keeping in mind the nuances and the differences and uniqueness of each state, province, country, etc., what advice do you have for those looking to mirror your success? So again, I think the the most important thing is that to get a diversity of voices from a diversity of of sectors to make sure that the the needs are the same. I mean, I think you could probably say our four big categories would probably stand to be similar everywhere you look. The you know the curriculum, professional development, community engagement, and and that leadership piece. I think that matters everywhere. Sure, but. But I, I think making sure that there are nonprofits, that there are educators from the informal sector, that there are school leaders at the table when they're having those conversations really helps us to come up with a plan that, that might make things happen more fluidly. Yeah. So having that basic framework in place so that you know you're, you're speaking with the same voice. Yeah. For sure. Any final thoughts before we sign off? No, it's just, you know, I, I've, I've been a reader of Green Teacher for a long time now, and, and I'm, I'm thrilled. And I think it's such a great resource. I use it a lot in my teaching when I'm working with pre-service teachers. And then also when I'm working with teachers in the field, I do think that it's important that we, we make sure that we're, we're meeting everybody where they're at and that we're coming from this space of invitation and non-disputable facts when we're yes. talking about climate change. But um, it's, it's been a real joy to do this work. And I'm so proud of our state. And I, I do think we have made a bit of a roadmap that provinces and states across North America, maybe beyond, can, can look to help make plans moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. And there's no need to reinvent the wheel. If somebody in a particular jurisdiction like New Jersey has come up with a great framework, use it. We don't have a lot of time left. You know, the, when, I, when I started teaching the environmental ed classes at our institution, I used some curricular materials from Ontario that were outstanding. The the Natural Curiosity series. We oh yeah, they're awesome. We started with that. You know, there was no reason to to pick a different book when they were doing these great things already. You know, a lot of what they've done in California and in Connecticut, and there's there's a lot of wonderful places. Let alone Australia. I mean, there there's, you know, if we're talking about outdoor schools, we should look to what the Germans are doing. You know, we've got mm -hmm. really great examples globally and you're totally right. There's no reason to reinvent the wheel when there are people who are already doing great things. It Sometimes we got to just follow their lead. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Lauren, for joining us, sharing your stories, your insights, and in particular that anecdote about someone who came in with a very dismissive mindset and by not having that even entertained, was able to come around. That's certainly something that I'll take from this conversation and I'm sure our listeners will as well. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was such an honor. Though this flock mostly consists of Dunlin, there are some red knots among them, your first of the year. Numbers are not what they once were, a fact that is both troubling and motivating all at once. Yet it is always special to bear witness to the grueling journey of these remarkable beings. 
even under a rainy sky on a cool May morning. Talking with Green Teachers is co-hosted by Ian Shanahan and me, Sofia Vargasnesi. Ian is the show's writer and editor. Logo design is by Devin Terrien. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or iTunes to get instant access to each new episode. If you really like the show, give us a rating too. We can also be found wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us in this episode. We'll chat again soon. And you wrote the report that the Thought Leader Committee addressed. Uh, sorry, I'll just try that again. This is the beauty of not recording live. Maybe, maybe this can go in the <laughs> blooper reel. All right, take two.